Welcome to Surviving Society with Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. Are you interested in some further reading on social movements and left politics? You should be if you're listening to Surviving Society. Red Pepper is a quarterly magazine and website of politics and culture. It is a space for debate on the left and a home for open-minded socialists. Red Pepper is reader-funded with a sliding scale subscription model, ensuring its content is available to all. Find a link to Red Pepper magazine in the episode notes. Welcome to a special episode of Surviving Society, live from the world transformed, a festival of radical politics, art and music. On Monday the 26th of September, we were at the world transformed and interviewed a select group of people about the cost of living crisis. Each guest was read the following statement. Phrases like the cost of living crisis end up getting used and repeated so much that the meaning and the lies behind the issue get missed. What do you see as the urgent matters concerning the cost of living crisis? And what would you do to advise or alleviate them? We are joined with Amadeep Singh Dillon, who is programme coordinator at The World Transformed, a bartender and a trade unionist. As of all our other conversations today, we're talking about the cost of living. And I think, Amadeep, one thing that I wanted to talk to you about is what the cost of living means for hospitality. A cost of living crisis, sorry, means hospitality. I think the first thing that I'd say probably is that the cost of living crisis as a framing is basically a way of kind of obfuscating what's actually happening, which is that poverty is becoming widespread. If we look at the effects of cost of living, which is people choosing between being able to eat or heat their homes, um, and I'm thinking about, you know, people that I've worked with in the hospitality industry, bartenders that I've helped organise, um, and even my own experiences, um, it's commonplace, it's, it's, it's normal, and it's actually like regularised that bartenders go without meals, sometimes can't afford to get public transport, can't afford to pay their bills, often can't afford to pay exorbitant rent. All of these are the symptoms that we're told uh, signify as a cost of living crisis. Actually, it's just that poverty, which was previously kind of limited for a short amount of time to the working class, is now increasingly, along with precarity, encroaching into every sector. And so hospitality has been precarious for a long time. When I first started organising, I was told, you can't organise hospitality workers, they're too precarious and we proved them wrong. Um, But we're seeing that precarity manifest in journalism, in higher education, in all of the sectors that traditionally we would see as being indicative of a middle-class quality of life. The way that we address these things is through engaging in class struggle. Um, And in class struggle in an expansive sense that recognises that even though middle-class people certainly benefit from a better quality of life, from reserves of wealth, this precarity is coming for all of us and we're all fighting actually against people who own the means of production. And so what that fight looks like is trade union organising. And it's trade union organising that can't rely on calls being made from the top. It's trade union organising that can't allow itself to be constrained by the limitations of the law. Uh, When I was on strike in my pub, it was a wildcat strike. We didn't do it because we had a big strategy to engage in class struggle in that sense. We did it because we were getting treated like shit and we were fed up with it. And so we shut the pub down. We did what we had to do. It doesn't always work, 
but very often workers are faced with no choice. And actually, at that point, when we're able to show that we have leverage, we have collective power, that's where you get a, a, a genuine belief amongst the class that it can act as a class for itself, that we can change our material reality. And that's how we fight the cost of living crisis, because let's face it, whatever policy recommendations we can get from think tanks and we can try to suggest to Starmer or to the Tory government, they're not actually going to be implemented. So resistance is going to come from mutual provision, like we saw with mutual aid groups in the pandemic, and through radical direct action through our trade unions. Amadeep, it's what you're saying. By the way, absolute mic drop. I'm just, everyone's getting mic drops today. Like, the energy is incredible. But Amadeep, are you saying, that? let's just say the pub, the pub could be a location of solidarity, of multi-class solidarity? Because, like, I'm a black woman, but I love the pub. <laughs> but equally, like, what you've presented there is how hospitality as a sector has been struggling and been fighting these issues for a long time. But now, as you say, it's entering loads of different sectors. So perhaps spaces, leisure spaces, spaces of enjoyment, spaces that we go with our friends, perhaps these are the spaces that are going to be coming under threat, which is where we're going to be able to find hope. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. And I think we, we have to remember, though, that these these are contested spaces as well, right? So um, it's, it's not j- Pubs, I think, are one of the few pr- remaining public spaces where we're able to find community as well. Um, at the same time, like, as bartenders, like in Peckham, where I work, we've been thinking a lot about what our responsibility is in terms of serving alcohol to people who you know very plainly have addiction issues in how we deal with people who are being quote unquote disruptive or aggressive when obviously there's no divergence and with actually you know the the encroachment of policing into public space um, that's tied to property values and tied to those markets and so it kind of has to be on all fronts I think the pub can definitely act as that space of like kind of multi-ethnic solidarity what that means is that actually we have to fight to kind of um negate the fact that the way that the pub industry works is is increasingly not actually about serving drinks. So pubs generally these days are um, business ventures that rely on property speculation. So what we've seen a lot in the last decade is small pub companies buying up uh, rundown pubs in quote-unquote up-and-coming areas, not investing any money, paying the staff poverty wages, sitting on them for 10, 15 years, and then selling for the land or getting bought up by venture capitalist firms, right? Uh, The actual profit generation there is very often in the land value. Um, But because of that, we actually have power. Because of that, uh, we're able to fight back because the profits we're threatening aren't just the beers that are getting served or the roasts that are getting served on Sunday. It's actually about, you know, whether or not this is going to become too difficult a business venture for a company to be able to hold on to it as a land asset. Amadeep, you are incredible. Absolutely incredible. Thank you so much, Amadeep. Uh, Thanks so much. I am currently joined by the legendary Surviving Society alumni, Roxy Lagan, who is founder and director of Kids of Colour. Kids of Colour, as listeners will know, have been on the show for a a number of times to talk about, in particular, the No More Police in Schools campaign. But today, Roxy's going to talk to us a little bit about the main question of this episode is concerning the cost of living crisis. So what are the urgent matters for you concerning the cost of living crisis, Roxy? Yeah, I think for me, particularly if I'm thinking about Manchester and locally, what's been challenging in terms of the cost of living crisis, it's stuff like, so recently Manchester City Council raised People's Council tax in a time that obviously is extremely difficult for people. But what's that be, what that is being used for is things like putting that additionally raised money towards things like Greater Manchester Police. And so I'm um, signing this off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what's the justification? Yeah, so... And to add some frustration to that, the Greater Manchester Combined Authority, which, which Andy Burnham 
obviously kind of runs, um, put out a public consultation on whether the public wanted their council tax raised to be able to fund Greater Manchester Police. Now, we did a lot of circulating of that, of that consultation and it came back and there wasn't a huge pool of people who responded. I think it was about 1,000, but it was 33% of people said, no, don't give it. Um, and the people who said yes were much less than that. So the majority that came back, I think 50% of people didn't answer the question, but 33% of people said, no, freeze money going to Greater Manchester Police. Now, when he then brought up this public consultation, well, no, sorry, in a meeting where they then went to try and approve this increase in council tax with different people from across Greater Manchester's borough councils, um, he refused to bring up the consultation. Now, we were in this room because it was a public, public meeting, so we started shouting about it and saying... Actually, 33% of people that did that consultation said, no, don't send that money to GMP. You didn't have a, a majority bigger than that that said yes, but he pushed it through anyway. And he said that there is no better time than now to fund our police. Why? Great Manchester Police who were in special measures. There's no better time than now to fund them. Um, they've been doing great. Arrest, arrest numbers are up. So that was his justification of good work, which we know is, is irrelevant because we can, police can increase arrests as much as they want. It just means more criminalisation of black and brown people in our, in our communities. Um, and he really trusts the current new constable to push things forward, the constable who said he doesn't agree with Black Lives Matter, right? So you're also funding an extremely racist head of Greater Manchester Police. Um, but when we try to bring this up as the public in this meeting, he just closed it down, closed it down, pushed the thing through anyway. We actually ended up getting thrown out of that meeting by police. But the fact is, yes, it's a policing matter, but also it's a cost of living issue. You're raising people's council tax across Manchester, across Greater Manchester, to fund something that is not going to help them in a time where people are being pushed further and further into poverty, right? And, it, and it's going to make inequality worse. You know, more money towards an institution like the police, it's going to make things even worse. But it wasn't something that's relevant to what is needed now, and the public were against it. So, you know, for me, it's really understanding what people on the ground need, and that's not happening. I mean, they do understand what people need. They still got to push through policing because it's politically beneficial to them. But yeah, it's those kind of things right now that what is urgent is not what's being funded. That's another surviving sight mic drop. Roxy, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. No more police in schools. Exactly. <laughs> I'm here with Labour MP Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy, I would really like to know your thoughts on this question. So. Phrases like the cost of living crisis end up getting used and repeated so much that the meaning and lies behind the issue get missed. What do you see as the urgent matters concerning the cost of living crisis and what would you do to advise or alleviate them? Nobody's ever been up to come up to me in my office or in the street and said, oh, Mr Corbyn, I'm very worried about the issue surrounding the cost of living. They don't. It's not the language people use. They come up to me and say, I can't pay my electricity bill. I can't afford to feed my kids. Do you know what the price of nappies is at the moment? They say all those kind of things. They don't talk in this sort of um, sanitised language like the cost of living crisis. Yeah. And so I think we just need to change the language um, and change the language and talk about it like it is. We live in a country with more food banks and branches of McDonald's. We live in a country where there's more and more children arriving at school hungry and teachers dipping into their own pockets to buy breakfast for kids. We're living in a country with... Uh, 
those that have been to university getting deeper and deeper into debt and young people, particularly in the big cities, paying more and more for private sector rent. And energy prices going up massively, electricity and gas bills going up massively, and the government has hardwired in a 100% increase in order to subsidise the profits and dividends of the energy companies. There's only one answer, public ownership of that. Second answer, don't reduce taxation for the top end, don't reduce corporate taxation, increase it in order to invest in the future. I wanted to borrow money, yes I did, a great deal of it, to invest. Invest in schools, in hospitals, in railways, in tram systems, all kinds of things, and a green industrial revolution. They have borrowed far more money than was ever in a John McDonald's plan. In all, for you, like yeah, watching, well, watching. You must be like, what? I get mad Every, Everything I get... that I said. Everything that I said. I had a, and then some. Well, I'm a very quiet person. I'm not, otherwise known as <laughs> otherwise known as Monsieur Lezen. Um, but it's just crazy borrowing to pay the rich and to take away from the poorest. This is the most blatant grab at the heart of our welfare state and society that I've ever seen in my lifetime. Just coming back to the point about the fact that you guys said all this, you said this is what we need to do, and the fact is the government are borrowing more than ever before. It's easy for us on the left to sort of say, look what they're doing now, look what they're doing now. What do we have to do in terms of our messaging on the left to bring people with us to actually to go on this journey of redistribution and public ownership because there's clearly something wrong that we're doing. If they're still able to do this madness, what they're doing now, and we're still presenting reasonable responses and things that are going to help the many, what can we do? Very wealthy people living in tax havens that own our media. No, but they, what about us? Uh, no, you finish. Yeah. They condemn me for yeah. wanting to raise money for investment and they support a Tory government doing the exact opposite of that. And I was condemned as being unrealistic and extreme. Okay, so there is an issue about access to media. So therefore, voices like yourselves through mediums like this begin to help to redress that balance. How do we motivate people? Well, poverty is depressing. Debt is doubly depressing. And being poor and in debt doesn't necessarily motivate you to go out in the streets and fight back. And so when the RMT take action, when CWU take action, when the other unions take action, they're actually taking action for all of us. And so it's a question giving people a bit of hope to believe in ourselves. Jeremy. That's a surviving society mic drop for Jeremy Corbyn here in Liverpool. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you, Jeremy. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Really excited today to have one of my favourite critical scholars, and t- I'm going to say Twitter scholar as well. Like that should that ha- should deserve so much kudos. Like imagine if we had a journal that was like, do, do you know what I'm you know what I'm yeah. saying, don't you? Yeah. Anyway, Khadija, massive fan. Khadija Diskin is here with me to talk about the cost of living crisis. Khadija is a PhD researcher and critical scholar. Khadija, what comes to mind when we're thinking about the cost of living crisis? I think that as we hear people constantly make the statement, the cost of living crisis, as we hear that repeated and hear that presented as something that is real, that is this kind of natural emergence of the situation that we're in, it's important to realise that these are decisions, these are ideological choices that have been made by our government and in some part by the opposition to create what has been a war on poor people. And that's exactly how we need to think about the cost of living crisis. It's a war on the poor. 
I really like that phrase war on the poor because some of the other contrib- contributors and people we've spoken to today have also kind of quote unquote um, spoken about the phrase cost of living crisis as something that's constructed and manufactured around things that have already existed or that are, bit, that are now intensifying or perhaps we're just shining a light on things that have already been happening for a long time. I mean, I'm thinking about poor housing, I'm thinking about food banks. What are some of the other things that we can think about in terms of this? Well, I think that the entire kind of cost of living crisis is going to be used to usher in more stringent austerity measures that were, of course, introduced in the 2010s with the introduction of the the Conservative Party. So what we should be looking for is how this government is going to use this idea that we just don't have enough money to actually create more crisis for the poor, to create a system that will disenfranchise people more than we've even imagined. I think we need to really be clear that we're facing crisis right now more than we've ever imagined. The initial cost of living austerity measures in 2010 were an ideological choice. Now that ideology is coming into fruition and we're going to see this nation crumble at the feet of what is basically another ideological choice to essentially eradicate the poor. Do you know what? What Khadija just said in terms of like the way the, the way the cost of living crisis can exist alongside of a government being able to say, well, we're borrowing, we've got no money. So actually, even shining a light on us becoming poorer, they're going to be able to make us even poor, like oh, justify absolutely. even poorer. Absolutely. The, the ideological gymnastics. I haven't even thought about it like that. <laughs> that's, that's exactly what this is, right? And that's what you call a critical scholar. <laughs> <laughs> I am so excited today to be with Ava Vidal, who's a comedian and writer that I've looked up to for such a long time. Ava's going to talk to us about the cost of living crisis. Hello, everyone. How are you doing? (laughs) The cost of living crisis, the people that we've had on so far on the show have spoken today about it being constructed as something new, when in fact this is part of a long, long history of demonising the working class, but also presenting poverty as something new in order to not doing anything about it. And I just wanted to get your kind of thoughts on it. We've had people talk about hospitality, we've had people to talk about what it means in terms of the media, but yeah, any of your thoughts on it? I think um, in terms of the, the calling it the cost of crisis, cost of living crisis, I think it's one of those things. I think what happens is you have to change the language. So anybody who knows, does anything around critical race theory, which we won't be allowed to, thanks, Kimmy, but anyone who did, right, would know that after a little while, they they co-op the language and they use it and they, you know, till it, it, it takes the sting out of it. So I think, you know, cost of living crisis is a very practical way to describe it. But as you said, it's been going on. I think it's just been a long-term erosion of public services. And literally, um, the Tories, please don't deport me, Suella, but the Tories who have just been raiding the public purse. And I almost think they're doing it to see if we're going to do anything. I really think they are taking the living pee, basically. And I think they're doing it on purpose. What's really interesting about that is Corbyn was talking to us earlier about like how in his manifesto he was talking about doing things that were that was going to be embedded in a redistribution of wealth and resources but that was probably using much less money from the quote-unquote public purse than what they're doing now and it's just how have we got to this point where they're able to just literally take the piss out of our lives on a day-to-day basis I think I think you're right I think they're just gonna keep pushing and pushing and pushing yeah I mean, I agree with Jeremy Corbyn, who cancelled on me twice. And I think, (laughs) I think, right, that he's right. But I think that there is such a mentality in England, like the bootlicking mentality is so beyond sense. 
that they have ingrained into people's heads, Labour can't look after your money. Definitely the left can't look after your money. They're going to take all your stuff. Whilst they're robbing you, they are telling you it's them over there that's doing it. And you're just like, hold on a second. And there could be no bigger example of how class and bootlicking and stuff is ingrained than Jacob Rees-Mogg. Because if you listen to Jacob Rees-Mogg, he talks rubbish. He talks absolute rubbish. <laughs> and it's because he's got an RP accent. And it's almost like, you know, they talk about um, Labour being the politics of envy. It's not Labour. It's the Tories who create politics of envy because they dangle stuff in people's face. And people, I've argued, as someone who, who went to, who, who was privately educated, I argue against private education. Okay. Yeah, I argue against it because you know I'm them. saying yeah. that actually it's not fair. So I've had like kids in private school and kids in state school. The difference is vast. It's absolutely vast. And so what I'm saying is like they've, they've ingrained it into people's heads that this is the way it is. And actually it's just not the truth. And I, I personally give up really. Um, I ain't got nothing more to say to people here. I'm just going to move. I think you're right. The, it is the level of bootlicking and the level of what's seeming like you're enjoying sufferation. Yeah. Like, it's, it's, it's insane, isn't it? And you're right. Like, the way that you're able to literally rob, rob yeah. us in daylight and yeah. still say that Labour are the ones. And then just keep on pushing this patriotic nonsense. How is someone going to jail for a Captain Tom tweet? Are you OK? Are you all right? Do you know what I mean? And so I live in Bedford where the whole thing where he lived. My daughter's school menu changed, Captain Tom's menu. Did he tell you that? Did he tell you that's what he liked? He was 100, he had no teeth. I don't think he was eating fish and chips. What are you talking about? But you're bringing that to our children, to the school. And at the Jubilee, my daughter's never asked so many questions about the monarchy. She's got, oh, mummy, who's the queen? Has she got a husband? Is he dead? Was he stabbed? I was like... I'm going to leave that because I don't want her to go into school. There was a very good joke there, but I thought I'm going to leave that because I don't want to get arrested, okay? I'm not in, in it. And I think it's a real crying shame because the one thing um, that Britain always had for years and years and years was the ability to laugh at the upper classes. But the thing is, it's not them. It's really not, in terms of laughing at them and teasing them, it's these middle ground people who are the ones who enforce all these types of rules. Whereas the actual upper class, they don't care. They're the best comedy audience you want in, your, in the world. I'll tell you the worst comedy audience, the Labour right. The best comedy audience, the Tories. They will laugh at them, they don't care. They're going home, to, to, they own everything, they don't care. You could call Eric Pickles a fat bastard, he doesn't care. He's like, oh, 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 oh and he well, eats more. Like, what did you oh, call me? <laughs> oh, the way they behave is so pathetic. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and so, yeah, I think that, that that's what it is. There's like, a, 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 a in the middle, there's a row of gatekeepers. And it's a real shame because this country did for all its fault, be able to host really good debates. And now you just see the difference of just shutting out certain voices. When do you last see a Carla on anything? I ain't seen a Carla for a long time. And I remember I used to do Newsnight and used to do all those shows. And after Jeremy came really close in 2017, have you seen any of us? Have you seen me on Newsnight again? No. I was on Newsnight, they put me in the Express newspaper and said I was mentally ill. And that was the end of me. <laughs> do, you know, do you know what I'm saying, though? And I, I think that's a real shame because the spirit of debate and 
arguing and they don't want they're saying they don't want free speech no, yeah they're no. the ones that say we want free speech no they don't they don't, they don't that's speech. what i'm saying they lie about everything and then they turn around and say oh it's all them oh look it's, it's corbyn oppressing people by what growing marrows what are you talking about do you know what i mean what's he doing no it's honestly i'm i'm, I'm tired of it and i don't think there's i don't think there's any hope for this country anymore i really don't and you see the hysteria of the last weeks. I'm not mentioning what, because I, you know, I'm not ready to leave yet. But <laughs> I, I, I just, that was the end for me. I just thought there's no point. Thank you so much. You're amazing. Thank you. That's a wrap. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 